Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I'm Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. And we have reached August here, dog days of summer. Woof. Yeah. It's hot. It's hot everywhere, I think. It's hot in Indiana. It's hot in Georgia. It's, yeah, I don't, I'm not even sure how hot it is because I won't go outside, so. Time to stay inside and put on the headphones and listen to Acomedia. Exactly. And uh, speaking of things in August, uh, we'll remind you also it's SCMS proposal time. So get out your best ideas. Well, I was going to make some kind of snarky comment about about people doing their best thinking at at, uh, 11.47 p.m., but... That would probably say more about me than the people I'm purporting to talk about. So I, <laughs> I'm just going to retract that. All right. Cut it out. Edit it. Yeah. So cool off. Get your lemonade. Put a cold compress on your head. And write that proposal. Yeah. Well, we've got, speaking of then, some great summer listening here. We've got two uh, great interviews for you today. And one of them with Kristen Warner. I talked to her about the concept of colorblind casting and diversity in television. And then we've got another field note segment for you, an interview with Gertrude Koch. All right. So what, shall we give this a listen? Yeah, sure. This is uh, this, the first interview here up is with Kristen Warner, and this is kind of a current events interview. There's so much discussion in the popular press right now about diversity on TV. I wanted to make some sense of it all. So I dialed up Kristen Warner, who's just published a book on race and casting in contemporary TV. Let's give it a listen. Kristen J. Warner is an assistant professor in the Department of Telecommunication and Film at the University of Alabama. Her research interests are centered at the juxtaposition of televisual racial representation and its place within the media industries, particularly within the practice of casting. Her work can be found in publications such as Television and New Media and Camera Obscura. She also has a deep love for film theory and genres, specifically the melodrama and its most famous product, the soap opera. We are very excited to have Kristen Warner back on the Acomedia podcast. So thank you for joining us, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Sure. We're very excited to talk to you about your new book. And it's about colorblind casting, essentially meaning uh, casting without ostensibly race in mind. And many people, I think when they hear that, they assume this is a good thing, right? That this is fair and equal. The best person's going to get the job. Equal opportunity will inherently organically breed diversity. And there won't be any of that terrible stereotyping. But in your book, you argue that blind casting is anything but fair and equal. And that notion of the best person for the job is loaded with ingrained assumptions on the part of a casting director or producer. And that ultimately limits culture diversity and still raises stereotyping issues in the end. And you write, blind casting became a useful tool because it allowed showrunners and TV writers to avoid explicitly writing race into the script with the confidence such actions could create equal opportunity for actors of diverse backgrounds. But we know from year after year of SAG stats and simply what we see in our TV screens, actors of diverse backgrounds are not getting equal opportunity. So I'd like for you to take us through the basics of where this colorblind casting logic goes awry. How does it reinforce inequality in the end? And then what did you see from the industry casting practices you got to observe in your research that affirmed this circumstance? Uh, first of all, that's a really good summary. You did really, ah, that's nice. All right. I nice. read I read the book yesterday, all in one day. And, <laughs> and that's, a, that's summer reading, so. Fast. <laughs> yep. It goes fast. Um, I would say that, okay, so the first thing is, I think 
the actual practice of colorblind casting, the actual act of not explicitly writing race into the part, it has some merit. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a smart idea if you're trying to cultivate ways of bringing more people that look different into the room. And that can encompass gender-blind casting, race-blind casting. You want to cast someone of varieties of ages and sexualities. It's geared to open up the gates to people who are non-white. And so in that, it has some merit. It, it, the idea of it, the core idea of it is smart. Get a bunch of people into a room, have them read the part, and then theoretically the best person for the role gets it, which is what they frequently say. The problem comes in when suppose that a non-white person in this instance gets the part. If you go into the writing room and you don't actually change the part to accommodate the person who is taking it, you just assume that they're the person that you wrote. You And, and most likely the person in the writing room is white. Most likely they're going to write from an experience of what they know. And so they're going to write this person as if they were just writing for anyone because the idea of colorblindness is universality and we can trouble that notion. But you're going to write that person just as you meant to write them. And you're not going to allow for any of the cultural experiences that are embedded in that in that person's skin color, you're not going to allow any of those things to, to seep through because as we've been taught, that would be a stereotype. And then things might go well until they don't. And when it doesn't, it's what I call the pitfalls of colorblindness, which is when you don't allow for those historical experiences or those historical tropes. You don't allow for them. You don't think about them. And they just sort of pop up and the, the person of color inevitably will always fall into that part. So you write a normative character who happens to be a witch. She's a black woman. She happens to be a witch. You don't realize that, you know, there's all these tropes of black women and witchcraft and voodoo and all these other sort of things that we can tether to. You write this woman to be strong and powerful who don't need no man, but everybody else on the show has one, you know, and except for her, she has no one. Or when she does come in contact with men, they are often abusive to her. So you have all these different things that happen to this character that are terrible and that would happen to any character and that you could say, well, this happens to anyone. Sure. But when you put it on that body, all those other things that we've seen, all those other iconic images of black women and abuse or black women as hypersexual or asexual or mammies or Jezebels or whatever, all those other types, those images that we constantly think about, those things recycle. So you've essentially done the exact thing you didn't want to do. You just did it unknowingly. And that becomes the flip side or the benefit of colorblind casting is that you can claim plausible deniability. Well, I didn't know that I was creating this type or I didn't know that. I mean, I just wrote the part and this was the best person. And it's not on purpose or it's not intentional that this person is written as a stereotype. That's just what happened. So it's not on me, the writer. It's on you, the viewer, for interpreting this like this. And so that's your problem to deal with. And so those are many times the problems that come into play with colorblind casting and why it starts off as something that's a really good idea and a really good experiment. But it, then it just, if not checked for, if not changed in the writing process, if it's not a, you know, a mutual communication between the, the actor who may or may not say, hey, this is probably not going to be a good thing because actors are looking at employment. And so they're, they're likely not going to tell you how to write their part. 
And they're just grateful that they're not being cast as a drug dealer or a prostitute or a maid. And so it's a good meaning thing that goes wrong and then stays wrong because there's no incentive to correct it. Mm-hmm. And I'll note the example you gave there of the witch, if, in case listeners aren't familiar, that would be uh, you have a chapter on the Vampire Diaries yes. and the character Bonnie. Yes. Um, and then interesting then discussions between Julie Pleck, the show's creator and showrunner, and then the fans and, yes. and really compelling points there. The other thing I wanted to pick up on what you said is these words like universe universal or, or normative, mm-hmm. those always, though, are coded as white. So this idea that you're writing a non-raced character, you're not, because the notion of non-raced always ends up equaling white, which, again, as you say, kind of perpetuates the same problem. Yes, absolutely. I think when we talk about race, I mean, one of the things that we always talk about is how race is always equal to non-white, as if whiteness is not itself a raced category. So When we say universal and when we say normative, we are talking about basically the unmarked category of whiteness. And so how we make sense of defining what we are looking for when we talk about we want normative or how we want everybody to be the same. What we mean is we want people who remind us of us. We want and who us is, is generally white writers and producers and you know, showrunners and network executives. And so as long as the difference can be at a level of I look and I can count difference, then that's the epitome of what people generally ask for. We just want to be able to count and see difference. Yeah, you raise that notion of quantifying this because I, you know, I mentioned the SAG stats and this is always something we turn to. We look at these numbers and we count up how many non-white faces we can see. But I think what are your very compelling points in the book is that we have to move beyond that and we especially must consider the quality of roles and especially you tie that to a notion of cultural specificity. So like you're talking about racial difference. Um, So why do you find that quality aspect so important to strive for, but also so difficult to achieve. You know, when you're talking to people who are executives or watchdog groups like the NAACP or the Latino organizations or the Asian American Pacific organizations who are, you know, charged with making sure that there is equality across the board in all measures of industry, including entertainment, and you ask them, you know, what it is that they want, generally they will tell you, like, we just want to see ourselves on screen. And and somehow that logic has seeped into public consciousness. So we just want to see ourselves on screen. And so in whatever ways and capacities we can see that, literally see and count that, then that becomes the goal. That becomes the target. And the problem with that, of course, is that you can put millions of people in the background and see difference that way, right? Like, so in 1999, when there was the proposed boycott against the networks after the networks um, in their fall season, I think they had 23 new shows, no people of color in any leading roles. And so the LA Times hooked up with NAACP and other watchdog groups. And they were like, you know, if you don't get this right, we're going to propose a boycott against network television. This is going to be bad. There was enough pressure behind it that they had all these mild versions of hearings at the Beverly Hills Hotel where you have network executives. Some of them, not all of them came. They would all sort of do these hearings where they would talk about what they what they had, what they were planning to do, what they didn't want to do. And all these different incentives were put in. They have all these vice presidents of diversity whose job 
jobs are to essentially try and convince producers and executives to just hire more people. And that became sort of the staple, hire more people. So you have immediately this sprinkling of diversity. Like they start putting all these black folks and Latino folks in the background. And you literally see like people just moved from the background into the foreground here. We got some, we did it. <laughs> We've done it. We're fixing it. You've got these v- VPs of diversity who are going to these white executives and saying, you know what? You should put some black people or some Latino people or some Asian people on this show. And they have no teeth. They have no bite. They can't do anything to them. They can just suggest. So, you know, thanks for the offer, but I kind of like things the way I got it. I don't want to change it. New- I mean, if you're talking to David Crane and Marta Kaufman, yeah, no, I'm good with New York looking like it looks. I'm, it's good. Oh, we'll maybe put Aisha Tyler, like bring her on. She can be. Well, in fact, you, I love the phrase you use, a flavoring additive. Yes. But that's how it was, you know, just this a little spice. And again, yes. that notion then of like, yes. that's the other. Here's the norm. And then here's this little spice. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, I say in the book, like if you think of the melting pot notion, or I think of it more like a salad, like where whiteness is the lettuce. And then you have like sprinkle some tomato sprinkle some croutons on top you know just you know to add maybe a little salt maybe maybe a little (laughs) extra little flavor to the actual base which does not change and which is sort of the key ingredient and if you want to call something a salad so yeah so they they did all this stuff and it you know counting works up for a time you know it works if all you're looking for is diversity in what you see then that's what you're gonna get and after a while people stop paying attention the networks go back to their status quo and their regular scheduled programming and do the same thing they've been doing so we have this back and forth counting exercise now if we consider quality as a goalpost instead of quantity then you may not have as many people who look like you on screen, but the people who do look like you would resonate. And those people will bring in the audiences who would say, oh, yeah, look, those people are like me. Those people are people I know. If they're not like me, they're like folks I know or folks I think I know or folks I can imagine I know. Not folks who feel like uh, colorblindness is the equivalent of like whiteness dipped in chocolate, right? So it's not quite that. It's something that feels affectively more like something familiar. And so that resonance that comes because of the quality of the representation, the actual specificity of the representation is something that maybe we should lean more toward because when it happens people respond right part of the reason why empire is so successful is because these bodies that lee daniels imagined uh, and danny strong also um, imagined are also sort of linked to specific kinds of people that we know. And I, I would argue also that it's also linked to uh, reality television, which is in uh, black folks on reality television, which I think they drew an audience from there, but that's a different media post. Uh, but Next interview. Yes. But, the, but I would say that generally in terms of what makes people respond to that, it's that they know those folks, that those are people who they can imagine, even if they're most melodramatic or they're most exaggerated, it still feels sort of close to something. And I think that's part of allowing the actors to embed themselves in the part in a particular way and feel comfortable being that part and not feeling like, oh, if I do this, then I'll be a stereotype. No, if you do this, you're you know purporting to play, to present a, a kind of person, someone who might exists like this and that that's okay so and also i would say 
if all you're doing is counting the people on screen that you can see and you're not counting the people behind the scenes, you're not counting the directors, you're not counting the writers, you're not counting the executives in charge of greenlighting these things. If all you're doing is literally asking for black people to be on TV or a film, then that's not something that's actually that hard to do, although it seems it, you know, but if that's all you're asking, that's easily accomplished. It's much more difficult to get the other kinds of occupations that would create more in quantity and in quality. And so if you want to count something and you want to get to see how something can grow, you know, I would apply that logic to all those other creative positions that create the acting parts. If casting is but a part of a very big nexus of industrial roles that define what we end up seeing on television and, and in film, then part of the difficulty is having people who who are not a part of those in-groups, a part of those marginalized groups, um, having them have a a say in who gets to be hired for these particular kinds of jobs. So the more people of color that you have on your writing staff, that does actually change how your characters of color get to be read. And it's not to say that white people can't write black characters or men can't write women characters. It's not to say that. It is to say, though, that it's always good to have a variety of different experiences in the room. And I think that having more people in the room to say, I don't know about that. Like maybe maybe she shouldn't be. Maybe Bonnie shouldn't be a witch or maybe we shouldn't make all the black people who come on the screen like who come into the show maybe we shouldn't make them all witches too because then it looks like they are related so i think at the level of casting i mean part of the logic is if acting is fiction which is what people say right then anybody can we're just looking for the best person for the part i think part of it is casting directors should think strategically and i mean they and they do i mean i think if they can give someone an opportunity they do they absolutely do try and but they also know like that their business is often freelance and if they don't get it right and if they don't bring in what the producer or the director wants too many times then they won't be asked back to cast again so part of their bind is that they are bound by the fact that they don't have a guild they're bound by the fact that they don't have a union who can support them you know they don't have it so if they don't do what is expected of them and oftentimes it's bringing in normative looking folks then they don't get to eat. So, you know, there has to be a way to give them the opportunity to feel free seeking out both, you know, both bringing in different looking folks, but also having some sort of outreach where they can develop their files on different kinds of bodies with Latinos and Asians and black folks and other folks, right? Like there's got to be a way to make that more accessible because part of the problem is that they just don't have the lists. They just don't have the talent on file. So they go to what they commonly know. So there's just, it's, why is it so messy? Cause it's just, there are so many parts to it that just everybody, and everyone is bound on everyone else's stuff. So yeah. it's just, it's hard to do. And if you're an actor you get called in for a part, who's going to, I mean, Kat Graham is never, as much as I think she might want to now, because things have just gotten really ridiculous on Vampire Diaries. She plays, she plays, yeah, she Bonnie, plays Bonnie, Bonnie on Brennan. Vampire Diaries. I think as much as she might want to say something, she can't because as an actress, like that is her employment. She cannot go against her executive producer and say, I think, yes, I think the way that Julie has written, has written my character is very much in the vein of something very racist, although maybe unintentional. So, I mean, she can't do that because that's her, that's how she eats for now. And so all these different things are tethered to some sense of precarity. You know, colorblind casting exists to help with that, to alleviate that, but all the things that 
that happen afterward are completely out of each person's control because the people with power don't typically often think about it. I won't say that they don't care, but I would say that it's just not something that's on their minds or it's just not something that, that they think is uh, is necessary or required. I think if they, at the, at the basic level, all they've been asked for is counting. So again, as long as they bring that in, they've done it. So the people with the most ability to move are doing what has been asked of them for the most part. Everyone else is just tethered to that. And so they just do that, hoping that, you know, eventually something will work or somebody will, something will pay off or, you know, and it's just, and that repeats and reproduces after itself. So it's hard to imagine a space where you can be outside of that. Yeah, uh, I attended one of the Academy's uh, workshops, which I highly recommend anyone attend. They're really great. They give you exposure to people in the industry. And there's always the presentation of the network programmers. And one who I won't name, (laughs) this question came up. The scholars wanted to know about diversity and so forth. And he gave basically a version of colorblind uh, employment. But he literally used the phrase the cream will rise to the top. And we all, we were like rolling in the aisles because we're like, how just (laughs) the irony of using that phrase. (laughs) But he was convinced that this was, this was his accountability. And I think in in addition to the industry information you're, you're getting here, I also love this from a media studies perspective, because you're, you're going well beyond that notion of stereotype analysis, right? The positive, the negative, this is a good representation, a bad representation. I especially think your, your industry analysis lends such a great new dimension to that. And I especially think that shows with your chapter then on Shonda Rhimes, who absolutely you have to raise, right? Any discussion of TV race, Shonda Rhimes is generally the first yes. name that gets mentioned. Yes. And you've got a really fascinating chapter on her. I really loved reading your your deconstruction of all her ways to talk around and through this and so forth. And so you could probably talk for days about Shonda Rhimes, yes. but um, I guess if you give us the short version of, you know, the same people who think blind casting sounds like this perfect concept probably also assume black audience should be thrilled with Shonda Rhimes, but you still see something problematic there about how she represents the same ongoing problems with cultural diversity. So could you give us a little Shonda Rhimes take? Part of researching her over these years, and she's typically said the same thing. Shonda is, I don't, I honestly don't know what's honest. (laughs) She's tricky because she says so many things in interviews and then she switches up on you and says other things. So essentially the thing is with her, I mean, she is a proponent of blind casting. Her, Grey's Anatomy, many of the characters, uh, the lead characters were blind cast. She told the network that that's how she wanted it because she did the world was not just made up of blonde haired, blue eyed people. And so they were willing to go along with the experiment. And so she did it. So she, you know, had Isaiah Washington read for McDreamy. He, of course, did not get it, but she gave him the role of Burke. And so it was said, like, look, she's got this multi-dimensional also, and, and multi-diverse cast and race isn't a thing really with it. And so this blind casting innovation thing must really work. And I think if we begin with the premise of open casting is fine, open casting is great, then yes, absolutely, it is. The problem, of course, comes in with the exact same thing I was, the formula that I was describing earlier, which is the pitfalls happen. So Burke becomes the super spade. He becomes too good, too smart, too everything, right? Uh, Dr. Bailey becomes this very hyper mammy 2.0 where she never really, at least up until season four, I quit after four. I couldn't do it after Izzy saved that deer that I walked away. (laughs) 
I walked away. But up until that point, you know, she never really, you never saw her house. You saw her husband only because he like got pulled into the hospital because he had an accident. And she is pretty much there to guide those white kids, those little white babies and help them make sure that they do their life. And she's tough and fierce and all those things and sassy. But, but in terms of her own specificity, the things that make her unique, those things aren't really there. Right. Like she becomes, ironically, the very thing that she was written not to be. That is the actual organic uh, process of colorblindness. Like it's not that, you know, you cast organically and then they emerge into these diverse people. It's that you cast openly and then they transform into these types, these tropes and, and participate in these tropes that are really old. And so I think that's part of why Shonda's logic doesn't really hold up because she makes these points about being, you know, post-civil rights, post-feminist woman who, with her friendships, don't actually talk about race. That's what she says. And shoot, she might. That could very well be true. And yet we have to acknowledge the fact that she is partly a black woman and that a black woman is in charge of this. But the contradiction on that is that she also wants to be unmarked, that she wants to sort of live the the ideology of this colorblind life with her shows so she wants to be unmarked and i would rather just be the best writer not the best black woman writer and i i understand what she means i get it and i i appreciate that she wants to feel that way and that she that she doesn't want qualifiers but i think she mistakes qualifiers for being substandard as opposed to acknowledging that there is this key difference that she is it like, you know, that's that's it. Her and Mara Brockakeel, who's got a BET show that no one sadly watches, and Lee Daniels. I think we, I mean, we, there are like five people. And so you have to acknowledge, you know, that's real. But I think that that's the part of the contradiction and part of what makes her so fascinating and why she is both an advocate, but also would undermine that with an interview where she repeats that it, how little it matters. And you note that this race-neutral attitude she seems to have also serves a utility in the network game. Yes. That basically then she doesn't come across as someone who has the racial agenda, right? And so that becomes, it's as if kind of she understands that she has to play that game in a certain way too, but then that inherently perpetuates some of these same issues. Yes, yes, absolutely. Part of the contradictions come into play where you wonder if she is so cognizant of how networks work and how ABC quickly took up that blind cast thing and quickly turned it into PR spin as a way to show, you know, how, how elevated they are in their knowledge in the other networks because they are doing this. I mean, like she's smart and she's, I, I do believe that she is aware that the colorblindness is something that is comfortable to most mainstream audiences and that is something that won't upset them or won't throw them that they won't necessarily think about. So I think that she does absolutely realize that there is a marketing benefit to structuring her series as such, right? And that if she can get away, when she can get away with these sort of coded things that she does, and Scandal in particular, um, I think bringing Olivia's father, Joe Morton's character, into play and letting him sort of code think code these she create i don't i have no idea how this works if she writes the speeches coded or if he just says the words and you're just like oh that's code i'm not entirely <laughs> sure how that works at all like you know twice as hard we work twice as hard for half as much you know like i'm not entirely sure 
how that came about, but I, like she allows for some of that. But by and large, those are things that would just pass you by because you're not, you know, who notices that? He's just saying really powerful things loudly, strongly. So, you know, who notices? So I think she's smart in the sense of, of being very strategic about how she uses colorblindness in this very smart, very marketable way. Like, it won't upset you. Race is not a thing that I use, mostly because I think she thinks, and I think generally industry-wide, race is often thought of as this burden, as this heavy-yoked thing. That if you talk about race, then you must be talking about Selma, or you must be talking about something that's going to be really depressing. It can't just be something that exists in the lives of people. So I think... That's part of how she rationalizes excising it when she can from the story. And we are, you mentioned ABC and, and, and Empire as well. And we're just finished a season and going into a season where diversity, I, I you know, if, if you if you did a word cloud of journalism about mm-hmm. the season we're out of going into, like diversity would just obliterate all other words. But you also earlier, you brought up 1999. And basically, we, we do this often, right? And you note in the book, uh, Darnell Hunt's description of Hollywood's pattern of response to these moments of diversity crisis. So there's this circulation of offensive portrayals and public outrage, then depressing stats about exclusion, token initiatives designed to appease everyone, and then return to business as usual. And so your final chapter, you do get into, is there any hope? You said there's maybe a little glimmer of hope with some of the ABC stuff, blackish, fresh off the boat, um, how to get away with murder. But, you know, especially after reading your book, I'm, I'm hard pressed to be optimistic. So I'm curious your response, jumping ahead to where we're at now, is the season we're going into a baby step forward at least, or are there still just these fundamental problems, power differentials that are too entrenched and vast to be too optimistic about it? I'll, I'll tell you, I remember when I proposed, uh, this book is based on my dissertation, and I remember when I proposed it, I remember my committee members, um, Michael Kackman being one of them, it, it was, you know, he said, well, you should have, like, do you have any recommendations, like anything that can fix this? And I was like, no, I don't have one thing. I don't, <laughs> I, don't ha- I, I, I can't think of one thing. I can't. So, you know, the chapter where I talk about David Simon and The Wire and homicide life on the streets, like that. That is as close as I could think of and I can still think of to the best case scenario. And even then it's troubling because they're white showrunners. Like it's still tapped into auteurism and who can have a show about black people, like who can tell a story about black people and who can't. So it's still bound by those same constraints and limitations. And so that last chapter, yeah, I... Do I think it's baby steps? Sure. Like, yes. Anybody who attempts to try and make something better, you have to say, I appreciate it. Except for the fact that I don't believe it's long lasting because I don't think it's intrinsic change. I don't think it's anything systemic. I think we are still trying. I mean, the season that passed or in coming into this season was pilot season and all of the, the news about all of the, it seemed like for a minute, it was like they were just pulling black folks up in Los Angeles and being like, do you want to work? Do you want a job? Do you want to work? Do you want a job? Like you want an audition for this part? You want to be in this show? For a while it seemed like they were just catching everybody up and it, it seemed very exciting. And of course it was because in terms of employment, the more that you audition, the more parts that you get pilots in, your, your rate increases, your pay increases. So that's good on the part of black actors. Great. But the problem was it was pilot season. Nothing was being picked up yet. It was all just pilots 
So we still weren't sure what was going to happen. And, and as usual, many pilots don't get picked. So I don't think we're going to see quite the change that we were expecting when they were like 78 Black people have been cast in pilots. You know, like, I don't think that actually was going to be a meaningful number come fall. It certainly is a good thing, but it's not the same as we have appended the system. We have figured out how to think more substantially or, or to think more carefully and consciously about difference. So no, the sad answer is I think we are still in the same place we were in, which in some way, like I have to say, it's like selfishly, it's always good because I'm like, I'm still in business. Like I'm still, I still got something to say because nothing's changed. But you know, like I, but no, I, I don't expect that to change. The, the the sign of difference for me would be seeing more people of color, not just black folks, but all kind of folks in executive positions, people who are hired to write shows. And I, I'll tell you what worries me, um, these new outlets like Netflix and Amazon, who are creating all of these new original series that are getting all of this attention and all of this buzz and like they're trying to and are in many ways strongly competing with network and cable. And yet they're creating the same sorts of white auteurism issues that the networks and cable shows create, that they are still basing on the Duplass brothers or Woody Allen or Jill Soloway. They're not hiring Mara Baraka Kios. They're not hiring these folks to create shows for them. So that's actually more troubling to me because what that shows is that even these competing outlets are not picking up the vibe that it's not just the great cast of Orange is the New Black that's important, but that it is the woman behind it that is equally, if not more important. And that is what concerns me. And that is why I am so, so reluctant to say we even see a baby step. Maybe like someone's head turned. Maybe we got like, you know, like, oh, it's like, that's a th- that's important, like that, like a nice little nod of affirmation. A nod. Yeah, maybe that. I, I don't okay. know if it's the fullest step yet. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> well, we want to leave our listeners on a happy note, though. So let's finish. I want to talk to you about Magic Mike XXL, which yes. is just full of joy and happiness. <laughs> and um, you've written a blog post about the film on your blog, Dear Black Woman. We'll yeah. uh, link to that on our website. Yeah. But I went to see it yesterday because you had, and, of course, a whole bunch of, <laughs> of academic women on my Twitter feed had tweeted about it. And then I read your blog post. Yes. And I had a blast, just a flat out blast. But in particular, you found some revelatory stuff in Magic Mike XXL in regard to some of these issues of representations of race and specifically visibility. So could you just give a kind of a quick take on on what made you want to write about Magic Mike XXL? What stood out to you there? I'm so glad you liked it. First of all, I'm so thrilled. I was like, yay, Chris liked it. <laughs> it was, it's, it's insane. It's like beautifully insane. It it's just a crazy movie. It loses its mind. And it's just so much fun. It's like, yeah, this is completely crazy. Yeah, I'm into I can't, it. When I left the theater, I couldn't stop smiling. It was just, you know, I'm sure if someone looked at me, uh-huh. you know, that I drove home and like stopped at a stoplight, like what is a matter with you this woman? You feel a little bit high afterward. It's true. Yeah. Like I've seen it three times. And each time I see it, I'm like, oh, I'm still sort of high. It's like, oh, this life is good for about 20 minutes. Yeah, let's go do something fun. I believe. Uh, No, I think uh, what surprised me so much about Magic Mike was how it is a nice sort of case study of a group of people who learned from the first movie what to 
do in the second movie. And so I talk about in the blog how they face a lot of criticism about how white Magic Mike the first was and how, you know, Channing Tatum is dancing to Pony and like there are all these hip hop aesthetics that are appropriated and but yet they couldn't have any people of color with the exception of Adam Rodriguez. Like, how does this exist? And so I think they heard and as much as they could, they adapted to it. So, I mean, six minutes into the movie, they're like, we have a person of color. Like, literally, it's like a person of color. And they have a conversation about if Armenian is ethnicity or race. I mean, like, it's such, you know, <laughs> like, it's so like, oh, okay. Like, I get the joke. Like, follow along with us. And then, you know, they do all these things with the in the drag bar. And then the Domina scene where the main cast goes to Savannah and they go to Jada Pinkett Smith's brothel i mean i don't even know what it is like (laughs) we don't have a word for what it is what is domina (laughs) a ladies club like subscription club i don't know what it is Mm -hmm. but you walk into this club and there are all these black bodies i mean of all ages and shapes and sizes and there's not like mockery there's no there's no irony there's no wink wink isn't this cute you know it's complete earnest These women are being serviced. These women are enjoying themselves. And the music cues in that scene were so uh, culturally specific. Like they play, they have Michael Strahan dance to this Jodeci song from 1995. And I remember sitting in the theater the first time and I just sat up in my seat because no one plays Jodeci. Like no one. Jodeci is like one of those black bands that you just sort of know if you are black or affiliated in some way and familiar with Jodeci because you like 1990s R&B. I don't know. But it was just so specific that they had this particular song and had this particular scene with this large sized black woman dancing with Michael Strahan. Like, there was just so many parts of it that were so pleasing. And that, for me, represented true visibility. Like it wasn't just I can count the black bodies on the screen. It wasn't just that the focus was on these black women's bodies and these black men's bodies. It wasn't just that. It was that they were catering to a specific kind of blackness. Like it's not the totality of it, but it was a specific kind that I think signified, like, I know who these, I know who my demographic is and I want to cater to them. And so, as I said in the blog, after they did that, I didn't care where they took me to. Like, I trusted them because I was like, all right, y'all see me. Like, you understand who I am as an audience member. You, You went to 1995, you picked up my favorite song and you brought it to 2015 and I am now grateful. And so whatever. So, I think for me, in, you know, thinking about this entire conversation, like that is a wonderful moment of cultural specificity that you can take black bodies. You, that, that, and that doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't mean you have to stomp around and say, black, I'm black, I'm black. We're black, black people. We need to see. It doesn't mean that. It just means you play a song that you know and that the audience can potentially sing along to and be like, oh, my God, I love that song. And that is that moment, that specific moment that resonates. Like, that's what you, that's all you need. That's all you need. So for me, that's why I love Magic. I mean, I love Magic Mike for a variety of reasons. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But um, that was the definite moment where I was just like, I will, I will preach this 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 movie, like I preach all my favorite things, like my Mad Fat Diary. Oh, my Mad Fat Diary. That's another, <laughs> that'll be our third interview then when we get yes, to that one. Yes, yes, that'll but that also, crying. That raises uh, just a final point to end on because I wanted to read one last line for your book because I thought it was just a really beautiful line and it ties in perfectly with this. And again, a sort of common gut assumption, especially for a lot of white people, is to say, 
Why do we always have to focus on difference? Why can't we focus on our similarities? And you raise that and you notice, uh, you note though, a quote from the final paragraph, asking for one's difference to be respected and validated does not diminish the ideals of shared humanity. Indeed, identifying, understanding, and valuing the identities and experiences of others is what creates a more complex, substantive humanity. And I just, I think that's a beautiful line, a great sentiment, and, and really opened up so much of what your book said, and then even what you're saying about Magic Mike as well. Yeah. If everybody can feel like they're a part of something and not just that I have to take off the thing that makes me different from you in order to feel like I can get at something. If we can all be catered to, then that's human. Like that's shared humanity, that there is something for each of us that we can all indulge ourselves in. Shared humanity is not shaking off your difference so that we can all be the same. It's that I can be different and you can be different and they can be different. And yet we all can sort of feed from these experiences that are all sort of on the same table like that to me is humanity that's the benefit well uh one last note listeners out there follow Kristen on twitter uh if you're not on twitter get on twitter just to follow Kristen because you will learn a ton <laughs> at Kristen warner uh thank you so much for a fantastic conversation Kristen. thank you for having me i appreciate it Ah, good stuff. I'm so glad you uh, set up this interview. And it's so nice to to hear what Kristen's been up to with this project, having having been observing it for a while and, and really excited to see it come together. It's really, yeah, it's, yeah. She mentioned you were really on nice. you were you yeah. were on her dissertation committee. I was. I was. There are so many good projects coming out of that program and she was she was absolutely one of them. Mm-hmm. And I had a blast talking with her and of course you know including the stuff about magic mike and i do reiterate uh, i mentioned at the end of she Father, likes that movie yeah she does <laughs> it's it's insane fun it's just completely off the rails crazy fun uh but i did mention to, uh, at the end there to, to follow on her twitter and i do mean that she's got a really great uh fun but also insightful twitter feed so uh you know that that way you can keep up with the work of Kristen warner Yes, absolutely. One note then, her book, uh, of course, The Cultural Politics of Colorblind TV Casting. I bought a copy of it, a brand new copy. Right now it's only available in hardcover, and it's not cheap as these things go with academic books. So um, I've already read it, of course. I didn't want to just sit on my shelf collecting dust. So we are going to have another Acamedia giveaway. It's going to be a giveaway, and this one is going to have some special rules. It will, yeah. So we're going to make this giveaway available to graduate students only. And sorry to all others, this just seems to make the most sense. Grad students really are most in need of free, expensive books. Absolutely. Grad students out there, if you are a grad student and you would like a shot at getting a free copy of Kristen Warner's new book, uh, all you have to do is send us an email, that's info at acca-media.org, and share with us a segment idea you have for ACA Media. So what you'd like to hear a report on, who you'd like to hear interviewed, what topic you'd like us to cover. Um, from those entries, we'll pick one to receive the book. Grad students then, send us your ACA Media segment ideas to info at acca-media.org. And do it by September 1st to be eligible. Yes. You know, it's a, um, building, a, building a bookshelf is always hard. And this, and this movement toward, in publishing toward doing only a hardcover release along with you know, uh, an electronic uh, copy is really, it's really frustrating. And there doesn't seem to be um, any way to stop the movement in this, in, of that trend. 
Yeah. And I completely am, I'm totally sympathetic to to the press's concerns about this and why they're why they've moved in that direction, but it's 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 frustrating. It is, and this is one Kristen has said, the press has said they need to sell some copies of the hardcover or the uh, you know, paperback won't happen. So uh Although you may not be the grad student who gets the free copy, uh, all the rest of you should go out and buy a copy. That's right. Especially if those of you who have a crap load of money lying around to buy. But it is also, I will stress, it's a really high quality hardcover, by which I mean my cat pet himself on it for a good stretch of a couple minutes, you know, rubbing his his cheeks into it. So if you also Wow, so this one's going to come pre-read. Yeah. Well, yes, pre-rubbed. I hope that doesn't sound sound wrong, but... No, um, no. Cat owner academics out there, I recommend it for um, cat petting as well. Excellent. Excellent. There, now there's an endorsement. All right. So next up, we have a trip down the SCMS memory lane with uh, another uh, sample of a piece done for the SCMS field notes. Yeah, this is a project uh, led by Heidi Wasson, which is to conduct, circulate, and archive interviews with pioneers of film and media studies and foster knowledge of an interest in the diverse and dynamic developments that have shaped and continue to shape our expanding field. That's a really good description for especially this particular Mm -hmm. interview. Um, This is an interview with Gertrude Koch, the German film scholar, theorist, and feminist, who is currently professor of film studies at the Freie Universität in Berlin, or Free University, for those of us who um, can only speak English well. Um, so she sat down. And only then in a pinch? Yes, exactly. She sat down here with interviewer Robin Curtis, who is a professor at Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf, uh, to talk about her career in German film studies and her pioneering work in film feminism. So it's a really interesting story here about a, a key aspect of film studies history that we don't hear much about. Let's give it a listen. We're here with Gertrud Koch, who has been professor of film studies at the Freie Universität in Berlin, Germany, since April 1999. And we're here to discuss how you arrived at being a film scholar, what first got you involved in being involved with film Mm -hmm. as an object of study. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an interesting question, as I didn't start as a film scholar or film student, but as a film critic. So um, in my generation in Germany, there was not such a thing like film studies. So basically, uh, I studied philosophy, sociology, education, German literature. And so I was immediately, let's say, confronted with some of the basic texts, um, like Krakauer, Benjamin, Adorno. So I was trained in the Frankfurt School. And uh, so for me, it was kind of split screen, so to say. So I worked with uh, the series of the Frankfurt School that at this time was considered not being very friendly toward film, but I was also working um, as a film critic. Mm -hmm. So uh, on some level, I really had a very broad knowledge of film. Um, I have seen a lot of films. I have written about films extensively. And uh, so I must say on some level it came together when my film critiques uh, became longer and longer and the newspaper didn't want to publish it anymore. So I started to write essays and uh, some of them were very early on translated into English and published first in the New German Critique. And uh, on some level one can say that I was, let's say, preparing my own path. And uh, film criticism was my tool to open um, this path back to the university, if you want. 
What kind of venues for publication were there then, aside from the newspaper? Of course, there's a very long tradition of challenging film criticism in Germany. It's not the kind of film criticism that goes on, say, in North American newspapers. Yes. Quite a different tradition. Yes. How would you describe the divide then between the short texts you wrote and the long texts you wrote? Yeah, let's say you have to imagine at this time when I started to write, I mean, so-called scholarly essays, I was focusing on uh, the film theoretical basis of French film theory, basically. So I remember one of the first courses I have taught, Christian Metz was not translated, neither in English nor in German. Few of the students could read French, so some of them volunteered to translate small parts of it. So it was this kind of, you know, more performative thing that you really had to appropriate the series and to adjust it to a kind of environment that was not at all prepared for those. And uh, so it was easier with American and Anglo-American literature because those you could say, well, the students have to read. And uh, so basically, yes, so my, let's say, my uh, basis were the classical film theories, Balash, Arnheim, Krakauer, Frankfurt School stuff, and the French things, uh, Bazin, Cahiers du Cinéma. So I, has, you know, this was what I read. And uh, also then um, with uh, upcoming feminist discourses, this was a big challenge because this came together with the foundation of a journal that was modeled after uh, women and film. And it was also called Women and Film in German, Frauen und Film. And this was the foundation of a filmmaker of Helke Sander. But a whole group gathered around it. And there came together filmmakers from Berlin and film theorists from Frankfurt. And uh, so this was a journal where we tried to start also with translations, an open discourse about feminist film theory, where we, I mean, worked Frankfurt School topics from social philosophy and gender um, together with uh, translations of you know, Laura Malvey, Marianne Doan, Kaja Silverman, and Friedberg. So there was, was a very close relationship to those groups. And so I remember when we are speaking about SEMS, that was then called SES, the media was not present in the name. And, uh, you know, there was this kind of group, Miriam Hansen, Heide Schlüppmann uh, and me, we were the girls from Frankfurt School. And uh, so when we did panels together at SES, uh, I remember once David Bordel met meeting on the on the floor around in the lobby, and he asked, "So where are you going?" I said, "Well, I have to go to my panel. It's with blah blah and blah blah." And he said, "Oh, I see. It's a Frankfurters with a French fries." So this was basically the programmatic aspect in it. Um, I, as a critic, was deeply involved in something like world cinema, so I've looked at everything. So I traveled to the festivals. I have seen a lot of films at festivals, retrospectives, and so on. And uh, so you have to imagine when, let's say, there were a retrospective of Buster Keaton or Fayard, Franju, you know, all, all kind of really serious stuff. You raise uh, the issue, actually, in that fashion of the discrepancy, the, the distinction, say, between the status that film enjoyed, mm. say, in the United States, mm. or that it enjoyed in France, and the status film enjoyed as a cultural object in Germany, which Actually, I should frame differently because it didn't really enjoy much of the status. 
I mean, it is really goes back to the historical situation and the rupture from '33, uh, where most filmmakers were, I mean, forced into immigration or, you know, they were corrupted. So on some level, let's say this whole taking over from the Nazis of the film industry and the so-called film culture, this regarded film as a serious object of its own rights and autonomy. So the anxiety and the mistrust that it would be a kind of tainted medium with the historical stains on it um, was very strong. And then uh, after 45, the film industry itself was very weak. Um, so it took another, one can say, 20 years until the so-called New German Cinema came back or came for and therefore film become again a kind of more seriously considered uh, cultural object. So when did you first actually have a position that was defined as film studies? This took very, very long. Actually, my first was um, 85 in, at the UC Irvine, um, so where I get a visiting a professorship. And in Germany, I was nearby implementing this discipline. So it started, uh, when was it? I'm in the mid of the 80s, where you had the first film departments. But it was not really film department. It was basically a kind of, you know, you would bring a different etiquette on a bottle. And what you collected under this etiquette uh, were basically courses that were taught in, let's say, German literature, French literature. So it was not an institute by its own. This started pretty late. So the first institutes were either film, theater, and television studies. So this was a case in... Now, in Frankfurt, it was film, TV, and sociology. In uh, Bochum, where I started with my first chair, it was uh, film and TV and theater studies. In Berlin, it was the same. And wherever I came, I brought it into the rupture and the breaking uh, apart. So that from then on, we had kind of, I mean, film studies with TV studies. But basically, it was then film studies. Today, most of these institutes transformed themselves like the SEMS. Um, into media studies. It's the common term today. Film yes. studies has not persisted to the same extent. As yes, a, as it became part of media studies. There are only, as far as I know, three departments still in existence with mm -hmm. the name film studies. All mm -hmm. other departments mm -hmm. are various permutations mm -hmm. of media studies, Medienwissenschaft. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, how do you view the future of film studies in Germany? And is it contingent on the name, or to what extent is it? Well, my position there is I try to stay as long with the name as it goes. Um, if you want really to expand in your university, on some level you have to enlarge it. And I think uh, media studies is a model to make it bigger uh, because you can include more. So this is what basically happened. When I look at, back at uh, the institute, I found it in Bochum. So first we split away from performance studies. Um, then we had film and TV studies. Then after I left, they prospered, what is a good sign. But they went into media studies, collecting different chairs. And now it's really big. And they still do film studies. So it's not that it's totally vanished and it's not overwritten. 
the name vanished, but it's uh, still they have chairs for film studies. So I found that a fascinating interview, especially the details on how much our work is affected by the culture that surrounds us. It was true in Germany in the 1980s, and it's unfortunately true today. Food for thought as we see what's happening all around us, not just in the U.S., in states like Wisconsin, but in the U.K. and, and elsewhere. It can be so easy to just understand the field from one's own perspective, right? And not to end and to lose a sense of the national and regional particularities of how it is that that um, that these programs develop. And so I'm really glad that, that we're archiving some of this history. Yeah, and there's a lot more to come. I just got a list today from Heidi Wasson of the next wave of interviews they have, and we've got some fantastic ones coming up from you. So you can, of course, get the full interviews on the SCMS Field Notes website, which we will link to on our website, and we'll continue to present to you the smaller excerpts to just give you a taste of those, and you can get the full ones then on the Field Notes site. And of course, you can find links to that on our website at www.aca-media.org. Yes. So, Chris, what are you watching this summer? I'm watching a lot of Chicago Cubs baseball, which is oh yeah, hey, it's good and bad. Could hey, could be worse. It well, the past week has been pretty bad. They got no hit and they've been terrible. But it's been you know I haven't enjoyed watching them this much in years. So yeah, I mean, there's you know there's hope. Yep. Yeah, I'm finally catching up on True Detective. Uh, oh, because I haven't, you know, I've, I'm I'm in episode six of of the first eight. Okay, so you're still first season because second season, I'm still first season. Yeah, I'm hearing I'm some hearing pretty some dodgy things. things about it. Hearing some yeah. things, lots yeah. of lots of funny tweets about it. Yeah, I'm just. This is the time of year when I like to um I, I like to watch things that are about hot places, but um do it while laying on the tile floor with the air conditioning cranked up. That's a good strategy. Yeah, you know, it's good to watch an old Western in the middle of summer with the blinds down. And mm-hmm. and, and I think True Detective fits with, you know, it's Louisiana coast. That thing. works. And also through it, I've been doing some catch-up myself and uh, BoJack Horseman on Netflix, which sounds like a made-up ah. show. I mean, you know, it's, it's a... I'll just say BoJack Horseman. Go, go watch it. It's really interesting yeah. and surprising. All right. We'll check it out. ACA Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Durf Fund at Denison University. And from this episode, we would like to thank Kristen Warner and also Gertrude Koch, Robin Curtis, Heidi Wasson, and the Field Notes team, which uh, is a committee comprised of Patrice Petro and Barbara Klinger. Our work would be impossible without the help of our co-producers, Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison and Todd Thompson uh, down in Austin, Texas at the University of Texas at Austin. I bet it's hot down there. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's worse. I'm sure it's worse. That's the way it is. All right. Well, keep cool, kids. Stay cool. Happy proposal writing. Happy syllabus writing. And keep working on that uh, water skiing form. Yeah. Don't feel too bad about not getting all that much work done during summer. It doesn't make you a bad person. That's what I tell myself every summer. Mm